Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Circe Institute Podcast Network. You are listening to Quiddity, our flagship podcast here on the network. And I'm David Kern. And today on the podcast, we have an interview coming up with Andrew Pudoir, our good friend from the Institute for Excellence in Writing. Uh, coming up in a few weeks, in mid-July, we're going to be hosting our 16th annual conference. And our theme this year is a contemplation of memory. Um, and Mr. Pudoir happens to be an expert on the subject. He has a whole program, which we talk about in this podcast, uh, that, that IUW published that is all about memory and building habits of memory and uh, particularly how to, to do that through the memorization of poetry. Um, and so you'll learn a little bit more about that program. But he also talks in this interview coming up about habits of memory. Um, we talked about, you know, what are the habits that make for a good memorizer and that, and that make memory work possible. Uh, we talked about some of the, some of the recent studies that, that, that psychologists and scientists have been doing to learning about the way our brains work and the way memory can, can be positively can positively influence our brains and, and affect our brains and the way we think and the way we study, and also some of the things that negatively affect our ability to memorize. Um, we talked about that and much, much more. Uh, and I do want to say thank you to the Institute for Excellence in Writing and Mr. Pudua because they have been sponsoring this podcast network throughout the whole month of June. And they also spot, sponsored a, um, a seat at our recent Summer Institute Literature Retreat, which which we talk a little bit about in the, in the interview because I was there uh, when I recorded this interview with him. Uh, and the Institute for Excellence in Writing equips teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. At IEW, it is their privilege to partner with you on your educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. To learn more, head over to IEW.com. Uh, you can learn more about all of their programs, um, especially their poetry memorization program and, and all of their writing programs. And you can also learn more about Mr. Pudua. Uh, you can find the IEW podcast, which Mr. Pudua does, which is a really good uh, weekly show, I believe. Uh, check that out. And then also you can find his speaking schedule. He's a very busy man. He's always on the road, it seems like. Um, 
and uh, you can you can probably have a good chance of finding him somewhere fairly close to you if you live in the United States of America uh, right now. So uh, check that out. Uh, learn more about IEW at IEW.com. And again, thanks so much to, to Andrew and to IEW for sponsoring this podcast network this month. Um, if you have not left a review of our podcast, please do. Uh, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, leave us a star review. Leave us a comment review. That's really, really helpful. And we want to know how we're doing. We want to we make sure that we're doing a good job producing these podcasts and want to learn how we can do better. And also, maybe if you, there's a particular subject that you would like to have interviewed or to, for us to talk about, uh, let us know. We, we'd love to, to be able to talk about the things that you are interested in learning about or discovering or hearing more about. Uh, with that, I will uh, dispense with the rest of the business side of things. We will get on to this interview with Mr. Pudua. Uh, again, thanks to thanks to Andrew for sponsoring, and thanks to you for listening. Uh, we look forward to talking to you next time on the podcast. But for now, enjoy this interview with Andrew Pudua. Well, welcome back to the Cersei Podcast, Mr. Pudua. Thanks for joining us. It's always a great pleasure. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction that I recorded uh, separately, um, you are going to be speaking at our conference again this summer, and you're going to be talking about memory. So I thought, you know, let's let's talk about that theme on the podcast a little bit and kind of get prepared for for the conference. And then also, you know, not everyone, of course, can make the conference. So um, I think some of the things that you ha- you'll have to say at the conference will, you know, be things that even people who can't make the conference will be interested in. But as I was thinking about the concept of memory and the, you know, kind of the practice of, of memory and the idea of being a good memorizer, I suppose. I was wondering, what would you say are some of the habits that make for good, a good memorizer? Well, uh, certainly one is you need to be motivated. Uh, it's really Mm. hard to memorize something that you don't feel would be, you know, valuable. I assume, you know, we're talking about you know, adults or teens who need to decide they want to do something and do it rather than parents who would be coaching young children. Uh, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think finding something that you, you know, really enjoy or love or believe would be good for your, your heart, your mind, your soul, mm-hmm. that would be critical, mm-hmm. uh, the right, the right thing. Would you say that, um, well, let's talk. Let's talk. I guess about the younger kids. Are there habits that that parents can instill in their children to help them become motivated? Because in some ways, I think becoming motivated to memorize when you're an adult and you haven't had a lifetime of doing that, um, unless you have some kind of epiphany, I suppose, is something of a challenge. And even if you do have an epiphany, just it, there's practices and effort that it goes into it that is challenging when you're an adult and don't have a lifetime of doing that. So are there things that we as parents and teachers can do to help our young ones um, kind of have that motivation later on? Or do you think that's just sort of individually based and well, it's up know, to each a, person? A few aspects of that. Number one, you know, young children are wired to memorize. Mm-hmm. I mean, they that's what they naturally do. They'll True. memorize anything in their environment. So if you don't give children good things to memorize, they'll memorize whatever junk they come across. Um, I grew up watching, you know, TV and Batman reruns. And so I can still say, uh, to all beef, patty, fish, sauce, less cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. <laughs> you know, what, what, 
Why is that? Because you know you hear it on a commercial, yeah. you know, five hundred times, you can't not memorize it. Especially so, when it's a, a slogan like that. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and and advertisers. The, one of the funny ironies of the modern world is advertisers use repetition and just driving repetition, forced memorization almost, mm. to sell us on. Mm. The new idea, the newest thing, the the newest recipe or the newest uh, gadget or clothing or trip or whatever. So mm. they'll use a technique uh, that's very conservatively old in terms of its pedagogical uh, method in order to sell the hottest, newest thing that we don't really need. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it strikes me that you know, a big part of that is capturing the imagination. So you, you capture the imagination, it gets stuck in our heads, it gets stuck in our imaginations. Is there, um, is there a connection there then almost always between memorization and, and imagination, would you say? Um, I think imagination, repetition, if we um, think about how the brain stores information, mm-hmm. um, there's, you know, neurons make connections with other neurons and that's how we store you know, everything from what our mother's face looks like to how to do, you know, layup or how to conjugate a, you know, third conjugation verb mm-hmm. in Latin, of course. Okay. Um, of you course. know, what, whatever we whatever we learn and are able to recognize or do, we do because brain cells have made connection with other brain cells, and they do that through three variables. One is repetition. One is um, intensity and another is duration or the stretching of repetition over time so if i wanted you to remember some you know random fact Mm -hmm. i could say okay david um give me your phone your cell phone your home phone your wife's cell any number you might be at at work or anywhere you'd be because i'm going to call you five times a day and tell you what the japanese word for toilet is since it might be handy someday if you're traveling in Japan. <laughs> um, and I, I were to hammer that with repetition mm-hmm. and call you five times a day for seven days. You have a repetition of 35 times crammed into one week. You'd learn that. You would know that. In fact, you'd probably call me after the second day saying, stop calling me. I got it. Obenjo. It's Obenjo. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> you wouldn't need a repetition of 35. Right. right. But then if that, if that weren't reinforced over time – you would ultimately forget that, which is mm. why you know cramming for tests in college gives the appearance of learning, but the learning dissipates and, and the memories and the information you're trying to remember, it dissolves so quickly. Mm. Um, so repetition, mm. uh, frequency, that's one variable. Another, of course, is intensity. You know, that's the strength of the experience, the simulation or the, the intensity of need. If I said to you, David, I'm going to tell you this one time. No one's ever going to tell you again. You can't look it up. But if you know it a year from now, I'll give you $1 million in gold bullion tax-free. Would you remember it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You'd, you'd be afraid to go to sleep at night because yeah, you'd, you'd find be, a way. Yeah, driving that idea into your mind. You'd just be, you know, self-repeating it. Yeah. Uh, so you'd be highly motivated. I could also yeah. use the opposite and say, I'll tell you this one time. No one else can tell you. You can't look it up. But if you don't remember it one year from today, I will kill you. 
And uh, that would be a different form of intensity, not right. quite as effective because the fear of death impedes learning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but that would make it huh. appeal to intensity. And then, of course, duration, as I mentioned, that would be the stretching out of frequency or repetition over time. So if I called you once a week for 35 weeks with that bit of information, um, you would probably have lifetime retention on that because I would have taken the repetition five times a day times seven uh, and stretch that out one times 35. And so that would be more effective. So when we're memorizing something, we have a strong interest or desire, something that's humorous or poignant or affects us emotionally or mentally, uh, we will probably need lesser uh, repetition, the lesser amount of repetition, fewer repetitions mm. to master that. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. you know, you could teach someone a poem, um, celery raw develops the jaw, but celery stewed is more quietly chewed. <laughs> you could teach someone a poem like that and probably three repetitions in one day. They might have it for, you know, months, maybe years if they'd say it every now and then. Why? Well, it's got a little bit of humor. Of course, it has a, a, a rhyme scheme, and that always makes things more memorable. It has a rhythmic nature to it. And as you said, there's an imagination connected with the mild humorous element. And you can mm -hmm. imagine, you know, crunching raw celery and then celery stewed being soft and quiet. And, and so that kind of all works together mm -hmm. to help us memorize things uh, more efficiently. Hmm. You know, I, I was um, I was thinking about a story, and when I was in high school, I went to visit an aunt and uncle at Christmas time, and they had some kind of a dessert there that was like a moon pie type desserts. Um, you know, one of those marshmallowy, chocolate, gross things. <laughs> um, but then at the same time, as we were eating those, uh, he was watching a live. Well, not, I guess it wasn't alive, but it was a DVD of a concert by the band, the Eagles. And so now for some reason I can, I can, I have this connection in my, in my head between the taste or the smell of those moon pies and that song. And there's, and because of that connection, I remember, you know, words and I remember what was happening in that moment, um, in, in a really, you know, clear way. Um, and it really does seem like there is something about imagination or or the senses anyway that can affect our ability to memorize even when we don't purposely intend to memorize something so given that would you and the and the whole intensity factor would you say that we should try to tie the things we want our young children to memorize or or maybe even our, ourselves if we want to memorize say a, a poem or a passage of scripture or something should we tie those that action, that activity of memorization to the senses, or would you say that that is a, becomes a crutch? Well, I don't. I don't think it would be a crutch per se. Um, it, it is interesting to note that in the field of child brain development right now, they have uh, made very, very strong connections between olfactory stimulation, olfactory dysfunction, and emotional difficulties that uh, hmm. there's there seems to be a real tie so kids who have uh, you know brain injuries that cause them to have real emotional issues very often have a hypersensitivity or an undersensitivity or a disorder in the olfactory and gustatory systems so by providing 
uh, a variety of appropriate smells and tastes, you can help treat emotional imbalance. Um, oh, interesting. As, you know, when you determine that it's it's a, a brain injury problem rather than, you know, a traumatic experience or something like that, which, you know, does happen. So I'm just thinking that, uh, yes, uh, it's possible if we wanted to help ourselves memorize something and we used, say, you know, a particular uh, essential oil aromatherapy mm-hmm. at, while we were studying, maybe, uh, very possibly, that a little essential oil smell could help to reactivate the part of the brain that stored that information. I wouldn't be surprised. That'd be a great, uh, be a great PhD thesis or a, a doctor of naturopathic medicine or something. Someone could do research on that someday. Well, I remember when I was in school uh, and I was, stu- especially in college, and I was studying for tests, and I'd have lots of essays and lots of tests to write at one time, and I would try to find, you know, tricks to help me study better. And I just found that when I could visualize where uh, a piece of content was in a textbook or as an English major, say a, a novel or a play that I was reading, if I could remember where that piece of information was on the page or in the book, like the, how many pages it was, in, it was into the book or something like that, I would, it would help me remember. Would you consider that kind of thing a crutch? I, I mean, or, or is there not really crutches in the negative sense in memory? It's just aids. No, I don't think there's a crutch at all. I mean, of course, I think most of the listeners are familiar with the whole memory palace idea right, yeah. that was developed quite extensively uh, you know, in, in part of the medieval period mm-hmm. and is still used today by uh, competitive memory masters around the world. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things I'm going to talk about a little bit uh, at the conference is uh, this book, Moonwalking with Einstein, about a, a journalist. I, I who, think I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a fascinating book. He he went and um, wanted to go report on the National Memory Championships hmm. and thought, wow, that's amazing. He can't believe anybody can you know memorize a deck of cards in two minutes or whatever. Wow. And uh, so they said, no, nah, anybody can do this. You could learn to do this. We'll help you. So a couple of the guys coached him. And for a year, you know, he spent time every day just practicing. And uh, he ended up competing and actually setting a hmm. new a new national record, not a world record because the U.S. falls far behind in international competition this way, but hmm. a new national record for speed of memorizing perfectly one deck of cards. Uh, but then he said, you know, it, it's kind of like a tune-up to your software, but your hardware is still there. Uh, he was at some kind of, you know, event party or whatever, and he, he took the subway home, got all the way to his front door, and then remembered he'd driven there in his car. <laughs> so, you, know, you, you, could, you know, there's tricks. But the memory palace, that's what they all use. And what is that? Yeah. That's essentially a visualization. So people who have that good visual memory mm-hmm. and can combine it with the auditory, they're better off. I'm very auditory. You know, when I hear things, I memorize them much more easily than trying to, you know, imagine, you know, what they look like on paper. Mm. Although, you know, a little bit of practice, I think I could develop it. Children Mm. are maybe going to lean one way or the other. They're going to lean toward maybe a stronger visual, stronger auditory, maybe a stronger kinesthetic memory. Um, Mm -hmm. But you don't want to look at it as a crutch. I'd say you want to capitalize on all those. Mm. One thing I noticed um, and this was when I was uh, with uh, working with uh, musical theater and children's theater, is that uh, when kids are trying to memorize their lines, 
if they will put gestures to the lines or when they memorize the blocking of the lines and they affix physical motion with certain sequences of words, those get memorized a lot faster than if you're just trying to sit around and you know run lines by reading scripts. Hmm. So the quicker you can get into uh, building in gestures and blocking, the faster and more easily the lines for the plays will will come. Hmm. I'm curious. Um, you mentioned that the U.S. lags behind the rest of the world in in those compositions. Do you have any theories on why that is? Well. Um, that's a good good question. Uh, he, you know, in the book, he he kind of does say Americans don't work as hard as everybody else. Which <laughs> I think we're probably, you know, all kind of aware that there are other countries where the work ethic is just at a a, a completely different level. Uh, I think, particularly in the Eastern culture, you know, if you look at Korea, China, Japan, uh, Singapore. Um, Thailand, uh, you know, even maybe getting over into um, into the Indo-Pakistan area, mm-hmm. there's a pretty ancient tradition uh, of memory and the value of memorizing. Um, there's a, a, a proverb or it's a saying, it's like an aphorism in Japanese. We don't even have anything that comes close to it in English. Uh, but it's pretty commonly known among Japanese people, you know, like we would all kind of recognize the idea of third time's a charm. Well, they would recognize 10,000 times then begins understanding. Hmm. That idea that you, you do something so many times, you now don't even have to think about what you're doing. Now you can observe it and start to understand what you're doing. And uh, so yeah. I think there's a respect and appreciation for repetition for memorization really for tradition uh that we've kind of lost in the west and well do you think that the uh you know in the west we writ- the written word of course has been the predominant way we share information for centuries now uh, and was there less of a tradition of that say uh much later than here in the west where you know even even early on there was certainly an oral tradition many of the great great works of literature were, were passed on through through the oral tradition but was once the written tradition came along that you know th- that habit kind of seems to have if not died out certainly changed but in the east was did that oral tradition that that way of passing on information and stories did did that linger longer than in the west i think it certainly did um one of the things that we see in the West is an extremely accurate system of writing that developed, of course, you know, with the Greeks having mm-hmm. phonics and grammar, mm-hmm. moving into Latin, which, you know, civilized barbarian Europe and began the preservation of of all knowledge almost. I mean, not mm. all, but uh, right, and right, so right. the precision of language where in Hebrew, for example, if I think I understand this, there's no vowels, so uh, you see a few consonants, and your brain has to fill in what vowels would be there to make that word be the word it should be. It's kind of like you know kids writing in text language today, and they'll <laughs> drop out letters and right, they'll use right. numbers, and they'll write str and then the number eight. Yeah. You know, and if you didn't already know that, you'd never be able to figure it out. Right. So. Uh, in Hebrew, and I, I think to some degree, uh, 
you know, the other symbolic languages like uh, Chinese um, and maybe even Korean, I think in their earliest forms, they were not as precise, so mm -hmm. they relied on the memory. So mm. to read Hebrew, you kind of had to be reading something you already basically knew, and the symbols were the, the clues to remind you of that thing that you had already memorized. Hmm. Uh, in Japan, they didn't have a written language at all until uh, Japanese Buddhist priests came over. I think it was like, you know, 800, hmm. uh, pretty late in the scheme of things. And they, they taught them how to write Chinese, and then they affixed the Japanese to the Chinese. Uh, and you can hmm. imagine how cumbersome that would be. And that was only among the, you know, the educated elite Buddhists and, and so yes I think the tradition uh, the oral tradition was much much stronger and it reminds me of course uh, the um, the little thing I, I think it was uh, Socrates or it was in Plato something in Plato where uh, the the king of uh, Egypt the god Thoth T-H-O-T-H -T -H, Thoth uh, said to the king of Egypt I will give to you the great gift of writing and the king said, well, that's great, uh, we'll appreciate it, but I do fear it will also be a double-edged sword in that while we will be able to re write down and remember things, we will not be able to remember the things hmm. uh, on our own. So, you know, obviously no, none of us want to, you know, give up the great gift of writing, but it certainly it does have, like all technology, the ability to atrophy the skill which it replaces. So... Uh, if we don't have to know things, then why hold them in the brain? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, I was just going to say, it's really frightening to hang out with teenagers today uh, <laughs> because they don't really try to know stuff. They just ask their phone. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, why should I know in the Civil War? Why is I going to just ask my phone? Siri, when was the Civil War? <laughs> yeah. 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 That, yeah, that's terrifying. I remember asking a professor... Um, one time when I was doing some research on the Iliad and the Odyssey about the, the idea that it was passed down and did it, you know, couldn't it, or wouldn't it inevitably have changed, you know, you know th those stories uh, before they ever got written down. And they were talking about how, this professor was talking about how that tradition, the way they memorized, they were, there was such a tradition of, well, you know, all the old tradition of passing along stories that they were good at remembering the details and that one of the things that they did when they told the Iliad and the Odyssey was, you know, they filled it with things like what we now think of as epic similes because those helped, they became markers for whoever was passing on that story. And so their ability to memorize and pass on, you know, great details and long passages was just part of the way they lived and part of the way they shared language and, and shared culture. And so for us now, it seems so foreign that why, how could they, how are they capable of that? But, you know, we, they would probably think, how are we capable of writing, th you know, 3000 page novels or something like that? You know, part, it's partly about the way you live and the things you value, I suppose. Do you, um, do you think that w if people wanted to then take that idea, like the idea of, of, of a culture of memory and, and instill that in their homes and schools, do you have any practical tips for, for doing that within our schools and homes? Yeah, I think you want to, you know, I think anything that becomes a, a, a an objective needs to be structured. Structure means have a habit. And I've been in some really great classical schools, too, where uh, 
the first 20 minutes of every day is a little assembly and they make announcements and then they recite stuff all together mm-hmm. the whole school mm-hmm. they recite poems they've known they recite you know latin conjugations and declensions and paradigms that uh, everyone's learning and maybe some of them know it better than others but you've got you've got a whole school of people reciting these things you know day after day then everyone's going to eventually get it so people who need more repetition than others will get it and people who got it can be the source of that so i think that can work in a family too like monks who recite the psalms and then as they recite them together eventually they've memorized the whole book of the psalms exactly you know they they have so you know if you just said okay we're going to do recitation for 20 minutes you know every morning or before lunch or whenever Mm -hmm. the time is good it's just everybody and we you know we recite what we know and we work Mm -hmm. on something new um you know i think the three areas to specialize in would be one uh scripture Mm -hmm. you know because that's you know good for the soul it's uh we're commanded essentially to do that and uh, some of it, you know, especially if you use uh, a translation that's a little more poetic, uh, is is also very beautiful. So the beauty of the language, the truth, the richness of the of it. Uh, so choose uh, something you'd like to do. You know, first book of uh, first chapter of John, part of James, Psalms, uh, Genesis one. You know, these are beautiful, enriching. Uh, language and and the truth that you inscribe in your heart and just grab a sentence or two and say it again and again till everybody can kind of say it then add a next sentence say that again and again each day you know say what you've learned so far and add a sentence to that and if you need to stop and not add any more for a while it's a real mastery learning approach so you always recite and remind yourself reinforce what you have memorized and then you add to that foundation little by little and uh, you know it can be done I've met kids who've memorized the entire book of James Hmm. Um, I met a a girl once I mean I'm not I can't prove that she could do it but Hmm. her mother said she had memorized the entire New Testament by the age of 13 Um, that's impressive (laughs) I think she probably just spent almost all day every day from when she was probably five years old and (laughs) memorizing the Bible that was her her mom's whole goal in life was to get her daughter to memorize the New Testament or something well I think it was you know maybe uh, this belief that there's no better use of time and that it was a very complete language type of education Mm -hmm. and uh, certainly it's it's unusual then of course poetry has the advantage that uh, it catches the imagination a little more easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to do it with boys, you want to have poems that, um, you know, rhyme, that have kind of either a story or something humorous or maybe violent or disgusting. <laughs> uh, you know, something that causes them to enjoy knowing that poem mm-hmm. and enjoy reciting that poem. Do, so and, uh, you said with boys, do, do girls have less need for rhymes and things like that than boys do? Well, I don't know they have less need for it, but what I do think is that um, boys have a little bit greater need for relevancy. You know? Ah, okay. I see. So, you know, you've got boys. You yeah, know, yeah, it's yeah. It's kind of like, okay, if you, if, if you can show me why yeah. I should do this, I'm a lot more willing to do it than if you just tell me to. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. It's even true at five, five years old. <laughs> it's even true at five. <laughs> um, but if it's, self, if it's self-revealingly relevant, 
to them. In other words, hey, this, you know, I can learn this funny poem, and when I tell it to people, they'll laugh. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's intrinsically relevant. You don't have to prove relevancy then. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas girls seem to be just in general more cooperative, I, I guess, more mm-hmm. willing to say, okay, let, I'll do that if you want me to. Uh, you know, it's, it's a generalization, and there are, of course, going to be a lot of exceptions to that, but that's my observation. So when it comes to poetry, are there any uh, particular collections or sources or poets that you think are particularly uh, lend themselves to memorizing with children, or that you just, um, or that you just particularly love? Well, yeah, actually, I put together a whole program called Linguistic Development Through Poetry Memorization. Uh, It's got 80 poems plus 20 excerpts of famous speeches. Uh, And uh, we recorded them all on CD. It's my voice. So uh, you can, you know, put it on the car, put it on an iPod. Mm -hmm. Kids can listen to the poetry. And then when they hear it again and again and again, that's going to make it a lot easier when you kind of formalize okay let's memorize you know these words in this order in this way they've already kind of got it in the ear so that becomes easier so it's a wonderful program uh people can you know get it at iew.com and uh it's still one of my favorite things that i've ever put together Mm. uh this is a new addition we came out with last year to replace one that was about 10 years old okay and uh, we re-recorded everything we found we still after 10 years found typos and errors can you believe it yeah, well, I mean, being somewhat in the industry, yeah, I can, I can believe it. <laughs> um, and then I added in uh, excerpts from famous speeches because I think that is yeah. the best ways for kids to really own a piece of history, you know, mm. if they're studying it, to to find out something that who was someone who was actually there and mm-hmm. what did they say or what did they write mm-hmm. and take a chunk of it, you know, a few hundred words and commit it to memory, learn it by heart, and mm-hmm. you just bring it, and then that that little bit of history lives in you forever. Hmm. And uh, uh, the greatest speech makers of all time, like their ability to use language, is unparalleled uh, for many of them as well. So, uh, I uh, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Can I tell you one one little thing that just blows my mind? Yeah. Um, you've probably read, you know, of Frederick Douglass. Sure. Yeah. He wrote Autobiography of a Slave. So Frederick Douglass grew up in a totally illiterate environment. It was illegal to teach a slave to read. It was highly abusive. He was separated from his parents at a young age. And he he grew up, I I think you could arguably say, for the first 12 years of his life, in the worst language development environment you could imagine. Hmm. You know, think about Hmm. the vocabulary, the linguistic interaction that would happen between you know, other slaves and, and the masters and supervisors and, and you know, the long hours of, of work in a completely language-handicapped or language-deprived environment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then, you know, some kids tried to teach him letters, draw him in the sound and what they sound, and then he became free. And, th- and then he became, I, I would argue, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, orator that the United States has ever produced, at Mm. least from his time forward. I Mm. can't think of one person after his time, certainly not in the 20th century, who was as eloquent and powerful a speaker as he was. And when you Mm. read his speeches, it blows you away. His speech, what to the slave is the 4th of July? You you just, how did this guy 
do this. It's just mm. so incredibly beautiful and powerful and moving and convicting. So someone actually asked him, and this was written in a biography of him, uh, how did you become such a powerful speaker? And he answered, this was his answer. Get this, David. This blows my mind. He said, one of the first books I owned as a free man was The Columban Orator. This was mm. a collection of famous speeches throughout history published in 1794 it was speeches you know from cicero to augustine to you know luther to shakespeare to yeah. patrick henry all the greatest that have been said in english uh, translated sometimes and and here was what he said i memorized them all oh wow he memorized all the greatest speeches furnishing his mind with the vocabulary and the syntax mm. and and the ideas and the eloquence and the literary uh, devices and artistry hmm. and that that healed his his what what he was lacking because of his up because of the terrible upbringing yeah so i mean so you're never remarkable. too late you're never too late to, hmm. to and furnish he was, and he was an adult he, right when he was freed right young he adult was an, yeah, young adult. Hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a remarkable story. He his that is an amazing book, the autobiography of a slave that he wrote. That's that. You know, if you have, I would, would you agree that mo most teenagers should read that if they're studying American uh, history? Yeah, and not only read it, but I think everyone should read it at least once a decade. Hmm. hmm. It, it just. I guess I'm so, due. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't think I've read it. In about ten years, um, I do. Speaking of reading, I, I did want to ask you one last question before I let you go. If that's all right, you got you got a minute? Absolutely. Okay. So, so one of the things that I've noticed about myself is I read quite a bit. Um, I've taught students to read. You know, I, I mean, I'm working with my own children, teaching them to read. But I've also taught students to, to hopefully read well. You know, learn to ask the right questions and write about reading and all that. But even in myself, I notice some some gaps, some just in just in recall we'll say you know I, i'll read a novel or I'll read a, a book especially a difficult book and i'll find that when i come back to it later or think of that book i often think primarily of the spirit of the book or maybe a few ideas here and there but i often find that i have you know the re my recall on the things that i'm reading the that i've memorized my memory doesn't work so well all the time just in terms of you know there's recalling some of it and there's a lot of words in a lot of books so that you know you're not can remember not going to remember everything but do you have any tips or advice for reading in a way that is going to help with recall um and not just comprehension i don't mean per se but 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 learning to to help read in a way that's going to help us for you know have those things that we're reading help furnish our minds in a little bit more deep way than just sort of uh surface stuff well you know it's, it's funny because every now and then uh some kind of modern science or modern uh, periodical or magazine will give advice that's actually really old and good hmm. <laughs> so imagine that psychology today uh, had this article eight ways to improve your memory um, and it's almost exactly what Aquinas said um, along <laughs> with a few other kind of things Aquinas probably didn't say because it was just common sense then but now people mm. need to know yeah um, you know one of them is you know be interested in it so I think when reading certainly if it's something that we're reading so that we can 
use that information later. And you know, a lot of what I do is teach, and, and you do too. And so when we're reading something that we think we'll be able to share – and maybe add into a talk or put into a blog post or something, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to make it a lot easier. Yeah. yeah. Um, number two from Psychology Today, leverage your visual memory. So what you were saying that you remember something, you know, that's on a page Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, in a particular location, um, there's a, I think they call it a haptic element too. Like as your fingers turn the pages, it helps store the information. And of course that can be accentuated by marking in what you're reading. Uh, and well, I yeah, think yeah. You, you have the habit, and I know that uh, you all at Circe are working on a product I'm just uh, itching to get my hands on, which is a, <laughs> kind of a formal highlighting marking system for um, helping people read books more efficiently. Uh, so you can leverage the visual memory by marking on what you're reading. Um, they also have this point number five, when reading, summarize in the margin. So, you know, put keywords yeah. in the margin, yeah. and then you're going to remember that a little bit better. And uh, then they also said, you know, something that you really want to know, write it out over and over. Hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah. writing something down helps you remember it better, even if you just throw the thing in the garbage and never look at it again. You know, I keep, I guess keep, you know, I think about keeping a commonplace book, for example, where you just put great quotes or beautiful quotes or whatever that you want to, that you want to have for future reference. But I guess I haven't thought so much about writing things in a journal or a notebook so that I remember them later so much as just that I would have access to them later. But I guess that works both ways there. Yeah, it, it does. And there's even uh, some interesting uh, recent research on the effects of handwriting versus typing. So for kids in college or, or high school or whatever, uh, if you're typing notes during a lecture versus handwriting notes, people who handwrite tend to have a much better recall uh, at a conceptual level, at a broader level as well. Hmm. And uh, so there's just something that, you know, it, it kind of connects all the senses. So you're hearing, you're seeing, you're seeing what you're writing, you're feeling what you're writing in a a clearer way because it's on paper um so there's there's that multi-sensory storage of those ideas Hmm. and then of course the one thing i've been teaching everybody as long as possible as soon as you learn something try and go teach it to someone (laughs) Um, which is i think one of the um very convenient things about being married is I think we do this with our spouse. We yeah, read something yeah. and then we go, hey, you know what I read today? And we try to tell them, not because they might be interested, maybe they are, but we're really telling them so we can remember better what we were interested in. Yeah. Huh. That, yeah, I haven't thought about that that way. Um, so do you have anything else you want to say? Any final thoughts? Uh, no, I, I just... Uh, I think that, um, you know, like anything, the gift of memory is, as your dad would often say, you know, a distinctly human thing. And it it's hmm. wrong not to cultivate that gift. Hmm. And while we live in a world where technology allows us to remember less and less and have less and less a need for memorizing, let's not be duped into that it's not important. Hmm. The need might not be as urgent because of technology, but the importance is still very fundamental to who we are as humans. Hmm. 
Well said. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me on the show and for sharing some of these ideas with us. Love doing it anytime, and we'll see you at the conference in July. Yeah, I can't wait. See you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.